0: It was 1992, or perhaps 93. I was visiting my grandparents, which meant that I got to play my uncle's Super Nintendo. I was maybe about six years old. My uncle had only a few games, and one that I had never seen before stuck out to me. It had a gold label with a sword and shield sticking out behind the letter Z and the title Zelda. I plugged the game in, powered it up, and was almost immediately befuddled. After selecting an empty save file, I was asked to register a name. Other games that I'd played to that point didn't ask for anything other than initials after you had played a round or two. During the short bit that I did play, I did not get far. I wound up resetting the console and loading my uncle's save file. It loaded up to the bright green world of Hyrule and I had no idea where to go or what to do. After wandering for a bit, I turned the game off. It was different from other games that I played and I just didn't get it. I plugged in Mario World or Street Fighter 2 instead. I may have lost a lot in those games, but at least I understood what to do. I wouldn't revisit the game until around 1998 or 99, just after the release of Ocarina of Time. After playing that new Zelda game at a friend's house, it would inspire me to track down the older release again. Another friend of mine just happened to start playing the game at the same time, and we worked our way through together, sharing tips and solutions with one another. For this reason, I consider The Legend of Zelda A Link to the Past, my first Zelda game. It's a title that I still enjoy all these years later. Hello and welcome to Season 3 of Legendary Adventures, a Legend of Zelda podcast. This podcast is all about exploring the evolution of the Zelda series by playing through each of the mainline titles in release order. That means I don't plan to cover spin offs or multiplayer focused entries in this series. This season is all about the third game in the series The Legend of Zelda A Link to the Past. This is one of the most famous and most loved entries in the series. It was the first Zelda game released for the Super Nintendo. The others won't be covered here because they were obscure Japan only exclusives for the short lived Nintendo broadcast satellite service. While Zelda 2 pivoted away from the top down perspective and the design and style of the original game, A Link to the Past marks a return to that original style, although the influence of Zelda 2 can still be felt. A Link to the Past was released in Japan in November of 1991. It was produced by Zelda co-creator Shigeru Miyamoto and directed by co-creator Takashi Tezuka. In Japan, the game was subtitled Triforce of the Gods. According to IGN, that subtitle was changed during the localization due to a Nintendo of America policy to limit religious references and imagery. IGN reports that ancient Egyptian religious symbols and mention of a priest were also changed for that reason. The game was released in North America and PAL regions in 1992. In a published conversation from 1989 with Dragon Quest creator Yuji Horii, co-creator Shigeru Miyamoto said he was thinking about a sequel in the style of the original game before he began work on The Adventure of Link. He also said that ever since the release of the first game, the third game would feature a party. I mentioned this briefly in Season 2, Miyamoto claimed that the fairy spell was adapted from his idea of having a party. It's unclear, however, how far this idea got into the actual production of the game. In the final release, Link is the only playable character, and he goes on the journey solo. In multiple interviews, Miyamoto further emphasized the connections between A Link to the Past and the original Zelda. As with the original game, A Link to the Past was developed alongside a Super Mario title, in this case Super Mario World. Miyamoto stated the release of Zelda was delayed twice, being pushed from a March 1991 release to the summer, and then ultimately November. In an interview published in the official Japanese guidebook, Zelda co-creator Takashi Tezuka said, development of a leak to the past took roughly three years. Miyamoto said that most of that time was made up of planning and experimentation, with the production happening essentially in one year. He also said that not much changed from early prototypes to the final game. Program director Toshihiko Nakago stated that the overworld map went through a lot of changes, but that the dungeons were more or less the same from the start. A Link to the Past famously features a dual-world system where players move between a light world and a dark world. However, the initial concept would have seen players traveling through an additional world. In an interview published in the Game Guide, Miyamoto said at first there were three worlds, but players would have gotten confused. That's why we had to fix things up. Zelda 2 is famously punishingly difficult, and the original game is no slouch when it comes to difficulty either. A Link to the Past is notably less difficult than Zelda 2, and in my opinion it's less difficult than the original game as well. Nakago said that the difficulty changed near daily as they got input from game testers. There's also a clear effort to help players navigate the two worlds in the game. Information that was previously in supplementary materials now appears in the game. A map can be accessed with the press of the X button. Dungeons are clearly marked on the map, but it's still up to the player to figure out how to access them. Miyamoto, Tezuka, and Nakagos said that they put a lot of work into the game's hints. Miyamoto said, There are people who can find hints by themselves and people who can't. If you think there will be people who will solve it in one minute, there will also be people for whom it will take hours. Tezuka added, Even a single dialogue message would change a lot, which caused us some trouble. If you say something right out, players will catch on too fast. But if you say it in a really roundabout way, maybe they won't understand. Nakago said, If you put a piece of information in one place players would overlook it so we put it in three places in addition to the in-game map there are hints offered by various non-player characters and within dungeons there are special tiles that when interacted with will give players a hint there's also fortune tellers who charge for their information and it turns out how much they charge is random in the game guide interview takashi tezuka said that he insisted on that detail he said i was thinking Wouldn't a somewhat meaningless place like a fortune teller not have any set prices? Other people were telling me that it would be better to have set prices, but whatever, it's just a little thing." Shigeru Miyamoto added, I guess you could say that you shouldn't be shopping somewhere that doesn't have the prices on display. The developers added a variety of mechanics to help players adjust the difficulty to their liking. In both the original game and the Adventure of Link, there were optional heart containers to collect. If they were collected the player could take more hits truly hardcore players looking for an additional challenge were free to skip over collecting those containers the first game also featured optional equipment improvements like the blue and red rings to reduce damage and also stronger swords to increase link's attack power a link to the past features many of those same mechanics there's collectible mail to reduce damage to link there's upgrades to a sword there are also collectible heart pieces Collecting four equals one heart container. On top of that, a link to the past adds four collectible bottles. They can be used to hold potions, fairies, and a variety of other collectibles. Heart containers dropped by bosses, however, are no longer optional. They must be collected before the Dungeon MacGuffin will appear. Whether this was conscious or not, it seems to be a detail lifted from Zelda 2. That game awarded an automatic level up for completing a dungeon. Heart containers are the closest thing to a level up in A Link to the Past. The designers tried to encourage exploration in this title by hiding more optional items on the world map than ever. Takashi Tezuka said, We wanted it to be a game you could play over and over again. Beating it once, for example, and then challenging yourself to see how fast you could beat it again. I think there are lots of things to discover, even just walking around on the overworld. The game's story is a prequel. It's set before the events of the original game or its sequel. Continuing the trend started in Zelda 2, there is, however, a greater emphasis on storytelling within the game itself. Yes, there's still an extensive backstory provided in the manual, but much of the story is presented in the game without a need for supplementary material. A player could never look at the manual and get by just fine in this game. The game tells players that prior to the game's events, there was a war over an omnipotent and omniscient golden power which was hidden in a golden land. People who enter the golden land do not return. One day, the monster started pouring out of the golden land, so by orders of the king, seven wise men sealed the entrance. Generations later, a sorcerer named Aghanim appears in the kingdom. He kills the king and kidnaps seven maidens who are the descendants of the wise men we of course play as link who is called upon by zelda to defeat Ganon and save the kingdom his quest will lead him to the legendary master sword and ultimately to the golden land which is now twisted into the dark world and at the end of it all he'll find the golden power the triforce which we're told for the first time has the ability to grant wishes kensuke tanabe is credited as the writer on the game This is the first game in the series not written by Miyamoto or Tezuka. In an interview with Shigeru Miyamoto and Super Play Magazine, it suggests that Tanabe took inspiration from the Lord of the Rings while crafting this story. Echoes of that can be seen as the story focuses on an ancient artifact of great power with the potential to corrupt. In addition to Tanabe, Yoshiaki Koizumi also took part in writing the game, but he's not credited. That's because this was his very first game at Nintendo and he was in charge of writing the manual. Koizumi would play key roles in future Zelda titles and he now heads up the Super Mario team amongst others at Nintendo. In an interview with Wired, Koizumi said that he helped develop the backstory for the game. The game manual includes an extensive backstory outlining the creation of Hyrule and the Triforce. It also provides additional details on the Sealing War and the coming of Agana. Koizumi said, back then, the people who wrote the manuals often became the people who came up with most of the backstory for the entire game. A link to the past looms is large in the Zelda series. It's recognized as one of the most influential games in the series, and we'll see some series staples and mechanics start right here with this game. This game would also solidify the series as following the Zelda formula laid out in the first game over the design of the second game. Next week we'll dive into the game's introduction and explore the dungeons of Hyrule Castle. If you want to follow along, please subscribe. Please also consider sharing this podcast with another Zelda fan. I'm Paul Riley. Thanks for listening.